You are listening to the Star Coach Podcast with Meg Rentschler, episode 112. Always remember, too, that less is more when you're giving a speech. Lots of times people get up and they think, oh, I have all of this knowledge and I want to share it with my audience. Well, your audience only can hold probably three to five new things in their brain. And then only if they've actually had an opportunity to discuss it. So if you can work that into your presentation, that's even more important or to share it with someone in the audience. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rinchler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Star Coach Show. And this week, we are diving into a subject that is really important for coaches, particularly if you think about using teaching and speaking as a way to market your business and build your credibility. Now, if you happen to be one of the 75% of the population that has some anxiety or phobia around public speaking, then our speaker today is going to be a godsend for you. Dr. Suzette Plaisant Bryant is coming to us today to talk about specific strategies and tools that we can use employing what we know from neuroscience to overcome some of that anxiety or tension when we speak and instead apply it to be very effective and motivational in our speaking to our audiences. Now, Suzette has an extensive background in human resources, leadership development, corporate training, and development. She is a former tenured college professor and taught the very thing that she's going to help us understand today, as well as being a published author and a speaker around the world. She absolutely gives us so many strategies and tools to consider as we think about bringing our message forward to bring value to the audiences that we want to reach in a way that is confident and measured and successful. It was such a joy to spend time with Suzette that I can't wait to spend that time with you and her together. So let's go to our interview with Dr. Suzette Plaisant Bryant. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Meg. I'm so happy to be here this afternoon. This is much better than being in an MRI machine this morning. Which is where you were all morning, right? So I think that that is so interesting what you're doing. Why don't you share a little bit with the audience about what it is that you're doing to help the field of science? Well, one of my great interests, and it has informed most of what I've done for the last five or six years is neuroscience. So I'm very, very interested in, I read a lot of, I'm the biggest geek in the world. I read a lot of books about from neuroscientists. I know a lot of information. When I talk to people who are neuroscientists, they go, 
I can't believe you read that book. And I was like, yeah, I did, you know, whatever book it was. So one of the things though, that I felt like was not something that was sort of lacking was I really would talk about the studies, but I never really conducted any of those myself because you have to have some very expensive equipment, MRI machines, which you, and you also have to have someone very, very skilled and knowledgeable, uh, usually an MD, PhD person who, who runs the machine. And so um, I had the opportunity to participate in a study over here at the Center for Brain Health. Found out today I'm a healthy normal, which is great, but it's a study that is really looking at, at the molecular level, at what happens in the brains of healthy normal people and the brains of people who have cognitive impairment. And the researcher who is an MD and now is getting her PhD in cognitive neuroscience, because of course an MD is not enough, right? That's right. So we she's need to uh, continue to stretch and grow. That's right. That's right. So um, anyway, she is she's really looking at what are the metabolic processes that happen perhaps years before the amyloid and tau plaques develop on the axons of the neurons, which is what causes dementia. Now, those, are, are, those occur naturally in the brain, but it's kind of when they get out of control that you have dementia and Alzheimer's. And so she's looking really to see if there's something that happens very early on that we could begin to, to look at so we could begin to mitigate it or eliminate it very early on before it's really too late. So you're a part so of that cool, study and you got, to, I am. You, you got to be in an MRI for an hour and a half today. How yes, did you survive yes. that? Because we're going to talk today about public speaking and presentations and things that sometimes create anxiety. Well, certainly being in an MRI tube can create anxiety for people. So let's use that as an example of what you did to sort of overcome knowing that you were going to be in this really long process today in a very confined space. Yes, exactly. And that's really some of the things I did. I kind of took my own advice. Um, so what happened was I did not know. I knew I would be in an MRI machine, but I also had to be in this helmet, which looks like one of those helmets from Star Wars, right? And I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't move my head at all. And then they put you in the helmet and then they stuff pillows in the helmet. So you can't move at all. And so at first, I was just a little bit apprehensive, not a little bit, a lot apprehensive. And then I thought a couple of things. The first thing was, okay, what is another time when I had to close my eyes and be very quiet? And I thought, oh, I do that when I get a facial. And facials are wonderful. Facials are relaxing. So I'm going to think about that. And then I'm going to think about other things. So as I heard the sounds of the MRI machine, I used them as a metronome and I started singing songs in my head. So I used my mind to change my brain, which is really the idea is that you can use your mind to change your brain and especially in things like public speaking, because most people are a little apprehensive about public speaking. And we have given advice for years and years, and especially um, I was a college professor for many years. I left a tenure position in uh, Louisiana to join the private workforce about three or four years ago. But I taught literally hundreds of, of students public speaking. And I can say of those hundreds, there were maybe five who were not particularly nervous. One of them had been a debater in high school. And then some of them were just naturally not, not nervous people. But most of the time, everyone is at least a little apprehensive somewhere along a continuum. 
And years ago, we used to think when I was in graduate school, that if you had this huge amount of communication apprehension, that you would always have it. In fact, that's one of the things I learned. You will always be a very communicatively apprehensive person. And then the research, the early research, brain research, in the early 2000s, we began to have techniques like functional MRI. We began to look at MRI, to have MRI to, um, to look at what goes on inside the brain. And let me tell you, having seen now my brain, and, and it's just really amazing. It's, it's really a miracle. So we began to see that and we began to realize that that's not really true. You know, you are not fated to have these problems because your brain is changing all the time. And if you can think about it and you can be mindful and you know the techniques, you can change your brain in the right ways because it's changing anyway. So you might as well get control of it, right? Absolutely. And many coaches want to include speaking in their repertoire to either build business, you know, get their credibility established, begin to maybe reach audiences that it certainly is more productive to reach many than one-on-one to begin to share expertise and bring value. And public speaking can bring a lot of anxiety along with it. So today we're going to talk about some things that can lead to, well, things to think about when you're going to be a public speaker and things that your experience in neuroscience can help us apply to that to increase success and maybe implement some strategies that will create additional, well, overall success and and performance, huh? Sure, absolutely. And and I think, you know, a lot of the advice that we had always given turns out to be pretty good advice because now there's neuroscience to back it up. So I'd like to talk kind of from the beginning about how to sort of prepare your speech and then some things you can do at the particular time. So one of the things that we always say is no matter how much you know about the topic, it is important to be prepared. So really write down your speech and then just write down an outline and practice it because what that does is it actually creates a lot of neural connections in your brain. And once you can move those neural connections from the part of your brain that is so worried about thinking to a part of your brain that is more automatic, then you kind of lose that that anxiety. So the more that you practice it, the more that you can do those kinds of things. One of the things that I always tell people is to make sure that as you as you construct your speech, because there's both there's both the delivery and the content that are both important. And in the content itself, make sure that you have three distinct parts so that you always know where you are in your speech. Because if you lose yourself, you will begin to have some anxiety and you don't want to do that. So make sure that you have a very definitive introduction. Make sure that you have good transition statements. And those are, are simply statements that help you move from your introduction to your, the body of your speech and from the body of your speech to your conclusion. And always remember, too, that less is more when you're giving a speech. Um, lots of times people get up and they think, oh, I have all of this knowledge and I want to share it with my audience. Well, your audience only can hold probably three to five new things in their brain. And then only if they've actually been 
had an opportunity to discuss it. So if you can work that into your into your presentation, that's even more important or to share it with someone in the audience. So those kinds of things can really, really help to remember. And, and when you get to the conclusion, and we'll talk about this later, but make sure that you, you do, you make sure that it's, it's, a satisfying conclusion to your audience. And we'll talk a little bit about how to do that. Okay. So just to be, to, to kind of recap, because you gave all this great information right out of the gate, A, that the old tried and true uh, advice of practice, practice, practice is key to solid delivery because you want to move your brain from that thinking about it to as much as possible, having it be an automatic flow that it has become just like with any behavior that we have, the more that we do it, the more comfortable we are with it, the more it flows rather than has having to be thought about. And then to have those three distinct pieces of your conversation, the introduction, the body and the close. Yes. And, And also the transition statements in between each part. Because a lot of times people will get up and they'll, they'll really rock the introduction. You know, they'll have a great story to tell or they'll have some compelling statistics and then they lose their place. And so if you have good transition statements and your transition statement can be simply, let's look at, let's look more in depth about the things that we just talked about. So it can be even as simple as that. It doesn't have to be a brilliant uh, piece of literature. You know, you don't have to be Shakespeare to write a good speech. And um, although he, you know, he did write good speeches, but you don't have to be Shakespeare to do that. So you don't really, you can, you can have a good transition statement and it will help you to move and to remind you to move because the other thing that speakers sometimes get happens to them is that they will get stuck and that's uh, something. And so they'll, they'll reiterate what they've said a number of times. And there is no quicker way to lose your audience. There is no quicker way to lose your audience. And what happens is your brain gets sort of in this iterative cycle, right? Your brain says, oh, I remember this. So let me say it again. And, and oh, again, so kind of good. <laughs> yeah. So let me say it again, because I remember it. And I feel I'm getting a little shot of dopamine because I know this and I'm saying it. So and your audience is like, oh, we've heard this before. And so that's one of the things one of the things I found with in years of, of working with people in public speaking is it's never if you have five minutes or 10 minutes, make sure that you you carefully frame your your speech or your delivery or your presentation for that period of time. Because even though it sounds like a lot of time, time passes differently when you're on a stage or you're at a podium. And what will happen is you will spend a lot more time than you ever thought you did. And that's the other way to lose your audience is because really people's attention span is not that long. And now because of social media, because we have so many other things competing for our attention, you just cannot, you know, you have to move on. You have to have new ideas. You have to have things like audience participation. And so not only for for your brain, but for your audience's brain too. And then once your audience begins to warm up to your, your presentation, then what happens is you begin to feel that um, there's actually some neuroscience research that talks about heart rate coherence and you have neurons in your heart, which is something that is brand new that hardly anybody knew. I just found out 
after going to a workshop, but your heart actually communicates with your brain. And if your heart is incoherent, it transmits pretty far out from your body. And so if your audience is now in coherence with you, they're enjoying what you're doing, you feel their coherence and you will reciprocate that. So it helps you, a a calm audience, an audience that is appreciative, actually gives you that reciprocity that, that makes you feel a little bit better too. So that's why a lot of people will say, gosh, if I can only get started, you know, I will have that kind of thing. And, and we don't, we didn't know why until very recently. How interesting. Um, people have always talked. Yeah, it really is interesting. It really is. And who knew that your heart communicated with your brain? Absolutely. You know, who knew that? So what are some of the ways that you recommend that speakers connect with their audience. I know you mentioned that using a story in an introduction. I know that I've heard repeated, you know, people learn well from stories. What are some other tools and techniques that you feel are good things to keep in mind to make that connection? I always do when I speak in front of a group. And even if it's, even if it's a presentation I've given before, and I recommend is to connect with your audience. The first thing you can do, of course, you thank them for inviting you to present, but you find out something about this group. So you go to their website. Maybe it's a group that sponsors a scholarship. Maybe it's a group that helps feed the homeless at Christmas time. Maybe it's a group that does something at Thanksgiving, or maybe it's a group that during Ramadan, they take the money from their fast that they would spend on food and they spend it on food for the poor. So there's always something that a group does. And so when I'm asked to speak, that is the first thing I do. And I tell you, I mean, now I did it even before I knew the neuroscience, but I know that now the neuroscience, I am giving them a little shot of dopamine, right? I'm giving them a little shot of something, a little shot of appreciation, and I'm building sort of a a little bit of a community with them. So that is one thing that I always suggest is do a little bit of research on your group and find out something that they do that you can compliment, something that you can give them an accolade for. And boy, you know, somebody who's, you know, you, you do a lot of things, you establish your credibility, but also you're giving them something that is really nice. You know, you're giving them a little bit of a little pat on the back and a little pat on the back actually gives them that shot of dopamine and dopamine is that neurochemical. It's that neurochemical of feel good. That's why that's why people feel so good when they fall in love, right? They get the same kind of neurochemical. Another thing to do when you to establish sort of this rapport with your audience is to smile at the beginning of your presentation. And smiling is um, one of those things that when we smile, people will tend to reciprocate that affect. People will tend to reciprocate that smile. So you smile and then they smile. But as importantly, smiling actually gives you a little shot of helpful neurochemicals. They have found there's been research that they've um, actually had people hold pencils in their mouths. And so when you hold a pencil in your mouth, it causes it causes the the ends of your ends of your mouth to turn up. And so it's 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 a sort of a simulated smile. So even a simulated and a fake smile actually change the neurochemistry of your brain, which is so interesting. So I tell people to smile because that tends to 
you know, one, one thing is that when you start using that executive part of your brain and you start getting a little bit of dopamine and you start doing those kinds of things, then it, it dampens down that part of your brain that is feeling the fear, is feeling the anxiety. Now, this is not to say that a little bit, just a little bit, not necessarily a fear, but a little bit of challenge is actually very good for your brain. Mm-hmm. They call it the Goldilocks brain because there is this, this very small part having the exactly right neurochemicals that is just right, just like in Goldilocks, it's just right. You go too far the other way, you're too anxious, and all of a sudden you can't really think very well. You don't have enough and you're not challenged. You know, you're not interested enough. And, and if you're not interested, you're not going to be interesting. So I, I tell people to smile. The other thing is to take a breath and think about breathing through your heart. That actually now is, we always knew deep breathing was helpful. But again, that is the whole idea of the heart rate coherence research is that if you take the breath, and I know it sounds funny because you're like, I, my heart doesn't breathe. No, but the mind can think about your heart breathing. And if you think about taking a, a deep breath through your heart, that will actually help your heart tell your brain you're much calmer than you think you are. So you smile, you take a deep breath through your heart, and you pause, and you pause, and you look at your audience. So pausing forces you to think about beginning your your introduction a little bit more slowly. It also is one of those things, and and if you if you try it, and that you probably you may have used this, and I, I bet you have in your coaching, is that you pause before you ask a question or you pause after you ask a question. You're telling your audience, and this is pretty much unconscious, but you're telling your audience, there's something really good that's coming up. There's something really important that's coming up, and you're going to really want to listen to it. So it does a number of things at once. So that really does Those are some things that are very, very helpful. Another thing that I always suggest is if possible, if possible, visit the venue where you will be speaking beforehand. And again, this is one of those things that the more you can, the more this, the presentation can become routine and more routine, the less anxiety that you will have associated with it. And so um, I tell people if you possibly can, and I do this myself if I can, a lot of times when I'm speaking, and I don't know, I'll go to the venue before anybody else gets there. Do you ever do that? Oh, yeah. I know you do a lot of speaking in front of groups. Yeah. yeah. As, as much as you can. Now, sometimes you're just walking in cold. I mean, there it's it's what it is, and you just have to do the best you can with what you have to work with. If you can visit the venue, my suggestion is if you can stand, if, you're, if you have to stand on the stage, stand on the stage. Stand on the stage, breathe through your heart until you begin to feel calm. And then once you begin to feel calm, if you can practice your presentation, that's even better. But as you say, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't. And another thing to remember is that when you're introduced, you should stand up because standing up and sitting down, sitting down and standing up change the the chemistry of your brain and the chemistry of of your body. Um, in very significant ways, which is why they talk about sitting being the new smoking. And uh, because sitting really is much worse for us than we thought. And standing is better. Walking is better. Running is even better. You know, we can't all do that. But we can stand up. 
And I always used to tell my students this, and now I know why. Stride purposefully and confidently to either the podium or the stage. Because again, what you're doing is your body is all of a sudden telling your mind, I'm not really nervous. I'm not really nervous. And so you want to you want to do that as much as possible because you are reframing the situation. It turns out that one of the things that we know about being anxious, not of course not being anxious in the in the way of having post-traumatic stress disorder, but you know, fairly mild anxiety, which is associated with public speaking, is that we kind of have a lot of the same neurochemical processes as we do during excitement. And so what we tell, and I used to tell my students that they and they say, Oh, I'm so nervous. And I said, No, nope, do not say that and never say that once you get up to speak. Never tell your audience, I'm so nervous, because then what happens is they begin to feel sorry for you and you start all, and unless you know, you, maybe you want their sympathy, I don't know, you know, but that's rare. As so a whole, do we really the, want to create that kind of, because yeah. I know that I've been in situations where there's so much anxiety, whether it's from even a service provider or say, I don't want to absorb that anxiety when, yes. when I'm, if yes. I'm sitting in an audience, I want to be able to enjoy the presentation, be able to have my brain absorb what it is that's been, and, and anxiety is going to block that for me. Exactly. And, and that, and that, and it does block it. And, and the thing is that we do, I mean, we have what's called mirror neurons and we do reciprocate affect, meaning that if someone's anxious, we become anxious. And in fact, usually the first time, you know, I have, would have 30 students at a time in a public speaking class and their very first speech, they're all anxious. So I walk into this room with 30 anxious people and I feel anxiety, right? I'm the student, I'm the professor. I've given tons of lectures before, but I actually feel their anxiety because it really permeates the air and it really does. We, we reciprocate. I see it in their facial expressions. Now I know that I feel it in their heart rate coherence. You know, so you can actually walk into a room and feel that. So if you are actually, this is, you brought up a good point. If you're on a, if you're on a panel with a number of other people and someone says, Oh, I'm very anxious and nervous about this, it probably would be good you to kind of walk away from them before you actually have to sit down with them at a table or on a panel because it's very likely that Although you feel very confident, their nervousness, their affect, you will reciprocate. And we found that the default is to the negative, right? So rather than them reciprocating your confidence, right. it is much more likely than you, you will reciprocate their negativity and their anxiety. It's that old statement that negativity is Velcro and positivity is Teflon. That, yeah. That's just sort of the way that, that we're wired and we have to work really hard toward the positive because the negative has more stickability. Evolved. You know, when I talk to groups, I'll say, you know, name five emotions and they'll, you know, people are think of five emotions and then I ask them to think of, and when they think of the emotions, they think overwhelmingly of negative emotions. And the idea is that, or, or some neuroscientists say that we have five times more pathways associated with negativity than with positivity. And if you think about it, there probably was an evolutionary advantage Mm -hmm. to being wary, right? I mean, our wary forefathers were probably 
walking through the savanna and they saw the saber-toothed tiger. The happy-go-lucky people who were just happy as can be and their brains were full of dopamine probably were... Eaten uh, by eaten, the saber-toothed you know, tiger. Yes. They got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. So, you know, that, that's... Um, so if they're probably, you know, we don't know for sure. And I don't know, you know, that the, but, but it does make sense. You know, and we know that. So if you are around other people who are negative, other people who are anxious, it's best to remove yourself from that situation. And I always say, if you can take a little walk beforehand, um, that also walking also floods your body with better neurochemicals. One of the things that's helpful too is if you go by a water fountain, take a little drink of water because what anxiety does is, you know, it's that fight or flight kind of thing. Reading recently, what happens is that the reason that your mouth gets dry, and sometimes it's helpful to know these kinds of things, is that your body thinks, well, I'm going to have to run really fast, or I'm going to have to fight, or I'm going to have to do something like that. So I don't have to digest food. And saliva is part of your digestive system. So all of a sudden, your mouth gets dry because your body's thinking, okay, I have to do something much more important than all the food. That's the other reason sometimes your stomach hurts, you know, it's because your body says, ah, no, we don't have to worry about digestion right now. We're, we have we're to in worry. survival we're, mode, yes. That's right. We're in survival mode. So all the blood flow, all, everything is going to your extremities so that you'll be able to do the right thing when you're threatened. So it is so, that's why it's so important to mitigate the threat and you can mitigate it in your own body by doing these kinds of things and you can you can mitigate it without reciprocating affect by just not being around those people. So you gave us great tools for preparation, ideas for the introduction. You mentioned that we want to not basically keep it to three to five pieces of inform like new information because that's what our audience is going to be able to digest. Let's look a little bit at the transition into closing and what that would look like. And then how do we do a powerful, satisfying close? Okay, I think that's a really good question, Megan. I think that's a really important aspect because, you know, you could do a dynamite introduction and you can have great transition statements and you can really present a lot of great information in the body of your speech. And you can have a conclusion that is so unsatisfactory to your audience that they're like, hmm, what that's exactly what they're going to remember. That's at the very end. That's exactly. The, the, exactly. Exactly. Remembering exactly. part of it. Yeah. So again, you want to transition from the body of your speech to your conclusion. Because what you want to do is you want to prepare your audience. You do not want to leave them unsatisfied thinking, oh, was, was there something else that she wanted to say? Did she say she forget part of her speech? What was it? So you want to have a good transition statement. You can say, all right, now I hope that you can remember all of these things we talked about because they're very important. Let's look at them again. So the first thing perhaps is don't be around people who are anxious. The second thing is to act confidently. The third thing is to walk around and maybe take a little drink of water. And if you do those things, you will be the pride of Toastmasters. And you notice what I did at the end, and this is kind of just extemporaneously, but one of the things I did was I slowed down and I lowered my pitch at the end. A lot of speakers will 
not do that. And so it leaves your audience a little bit unsatisfied. They're like, is there something else that they were going to say? Is there something else? And, and you sit down and your audience is, and so they can't remember what you did say because they're thinking about what, what you might have said. missed. Yeah. What they think you missed. So it's very, very important at the end to summarize what you've, what you've talked about. And then, you know, you can conclude with a lot of different things. You can conclude with another story. You can conclude with a great quote, with some great facts. You can do any of those kinds of things. But when you do your conclusion, you should begin to speak much more slowly because then your audience knows this is, the, this is, this is the, going to be the end of the speech. And then you also lower your pitch. So you lower your pitch, you speak a little bit more slowly, and it is more your ending then is very satisfying to your audience. Because a lot of times speakers will not, and the audience is like, well, are they through? Will they clap? You know, and the way to know if you've done a really good job is that they will clap at the end. You know, they'll say, oh, nice job. Nice, nice, you know, and so, and, and if they don't, or if they, if they're a little hesitant at first, make a note to yourself next time, practice the conclusion a little bit more. Such good tips. Let's recap sort of the things that that we learned today in that we want to, in order to deliver a message that brings value, makes our audience feel connected to us, build our credibility, we want to prepare, practice, carefully, practice. And in that preparation, we want it to be three to five pieces of information at the most. At the most. Three to five pieces of information. There's just no way that your audience is going to be able to hold more than that in their brains. One of the things that's helpful and one of the things they do in the Neuroleadership Summit is they actually stop after certain segments and they'll give the audience five minutes to discuss it. A lot of times we don't have that opportunity to do that in the speaking engagements we have. But if you do have that opportunity, all of a sudden your audience is like, wow, this is really about me. This person really does want me to learn. And I do have some ideas about it. And they will, if they talk about it with someone else, they will remember it better. And they will remember you better as being that awesome speaker. Well, the other thing that's important about that is we all learn differently. So just didactic giving of information is not necessarily the best way for everyone to learn. So when you can build an exercise into your presentation, or build discussion into your presentation, or something that puts the onus back onto the participant and and engage. So recently, I gave a talk at an ICF chapter around blocks, cognitive blocks, and we did an exercise where they had to sort of share with one another their favorite cognitive blocks. In other words, the ones that they fall into the most. And there was a lot of laughter and sharing, but they remembered those distortions because they had to get in there and and sort of talk about how they practice those distortions in their lives. Absolutely. And that's what a great idea, you know, and that's, and the thing is, they'll, they'll remember it after and they'll remember what you said about it and they'll be more likely to use it. And of course, that's what you want, right? Ultimately. Absolutely. So thank you for bringing your incredible wisdom and and lacing all the science in for us. I think that as neuroscience becomes more and more 
sort of mainstreamed, it's important for us to, to know. It's important for us as we're working with other people to know how their brains are firing as well. And our audience here certainly work with other people and their thoughts and their beliefs. And that is so grounded in what's happening up there in the brain. Absolutely. You know, I think we're, we're on the cusp of really learning so, so much more. I think, you know, we've, we've learned so much already. It's just amazing. But I think as the research progresses, we will find out more and more about how the brain works. And, and it, we'll find out that out and be able to, as you mentioned, we'll be able to engage other people and to, and to meet other people where they are and to help them, help them learn and, and allow them to help us to learn. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting and, and really the foundation, right? So we have the biological sciences now informing the social sciences, which is really great. It's a really great idea. And it feeds right into that whole concept that our clients are whole and resourceful and creative. Let's use our skills, whether it's to an audience that we're speaking to or clients that we're working with individually to tap into that to their brilliance, to to help them get the most they can out of the experience by us delivering in the best possible way. Absolutely. I think that's I think that's a really nice succinct way to put it. So thank you. You did a really nice talk with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well thank you for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Now, if this is one of those episodes that you listened to while you were driving or working out, I can imagine you might want to listen to key parts of it again with notebook and pen to get down some of the fabulous tools and strategies that Suzette shared with us. If you'd like to know more about Suzette, go to our resource page at starcoachshow.com and we'll have her information there. You'll also want to sign up for our ongoing book giveaway on the contact page. Our current giveaway is for Mindful Stepping, the deck of cards given to us by Eileen Schaefer. As it says on the package, warning, side effects may include a boost in positivity, a spike in endorphins, a jolt in life satisfaction, and a sudden urge to live life in color. I want to thank Eileen Schaefer for donating the Mindful Stepping Cards to our book giveaway. If you're enjoying the show, I would so appreciate a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. The link for that is on the starcoachshow.com website. So until next week, this is your host, Meg Rentschler, wishing you the very best for your coaching success. Have a fabulous week.